Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. For the second year in a row, financial challenges were tagged as a top concern of hospital CEOs in the annual American College of Healthcare Executive Survey. Specifically, increasing costs for staff and supplies, reduced operating costs, reimbursement, and government funding cuts. I'm joined by Dynamics Jay York and Provider Head of Sector Ryan Hummel to discuss why hospital margins are shrinking and how these financial challenges are impacting the sector overall. I know this is a very complex topic, but Ryan, in the simplest terms, why are health systems and providers having major financial struggles right now? There's always been five, maybe six areas that really affect directly hospitals' financial situations. I'll start with labor costs, just the idea of labor costs in general. Healthcare is, as we know, a labor-intensive industry. Hospitals, probably more so now than ever, need to keep up with competitive wages to attract and retain highly skilled and highly impactful workers. And that can range from clinical to non-clinical folks. And rising labor costs ultimately impact hospitals' bottom line. And if you think about it, competition is high in other adjacent sectors now, and workers can get paid more elsewhere in a lot of areas. So it's incumbent on conventional and traditional healthcare systems to compete with them. Speaking of costs, Rising healthcare service costs in general are also in focus for why this is happening. The cost of general healthcare services that don't include labor, operational costs, we can go drug and medical supplies, rent, anything non-labor has also been steadily rising over years. And it puts a strain on hospitals when they're trying to make investment decisions, whether that's into digital or expanding into low-income communities. And maybe specific to this latest downturn, there was a lot of investment made by health systems around digital engagement and depends on how you look at it, either was not executed as planned, was not utilized well, the solution may not have gone the way the health system has planned it for, and therefore has not generated the anticipated ROI. It also has occurred many times that these services and solutions have ballooned in cost and have cost more than prognosticators may have projected. And I'd also argue at a general macro level rule, inflation has not really been part of the U.S. fabric. You know, we haven't had to deal with it in a generation. So this idea of things costing more has not really been into decision-making strategies. Third area where we think really pins against the financial wellness of a health system is reimbursement rates. Again, most healthcare folks understand that reimbursement from government and private insurance companies are really important and hospitals rely on them. And any changes to rates, or if they're not keeping up with inflation, which I'll talk a little bit about later, really affect hospitals' financial sustainability. This is just kind of an opinion here, but it seems as though more than ever commercial insurers and CMS have had an upper hand in that negotiation lately, and that really has affected health systems. Two more quick ones, patient volumes. We'll talk a little bit about the paradox of patient volumes as well, but the number of patients a hospital serves really does impact the financial situation, whether it's the right kind of patients, whether it's the quantity of the patients, they can lead to reduced revenues and even high volumes can be a strain on resources. And I would argue from a thesis perspective, it may be less about the lower volumes and more about matching acuity to practice or being able to work around 
flexibility and schedules around patient preference. And last but not least, I would like to mention that capital investments, which are a huge part of hospitals and health systems strategies, can be very costly. And hospitals really need to balance the need for innovation for their financial resources when it comes to capital investments. And you know they've oftentimes erred on the other side and, and really have invested in capital investments, which have affected the financial sustainability of health systems. Thanks, Ryan, for giving us the whistle-stop tour of what's really driving this current financial crisis for hospitals and provider networks. I think for our listeners, the workforce crisis, the rising cost of goods, that's all been in the news, and I know we'll get into it a little bit later in this episode as well. But Jay, I'm curious which of these factors is really jumping out to you right now for a little bit more discussion. The two that really jump out at me in addition to the labor costs, which I'm sure weave through a number of areas and we can certainly discuss a little bit more, are really looking at patient volume and then overall reimbursement rates because these are factors that impact the top line, right? In addition to just the expenses and things that that systems are are experiencing. And I, I think I'll begin by saying this too. In times like this, which this meaning challenging finances, it's not abnormal for health systems or medical groups to solely focus on cutting. And that isn't the full story. It's extremely important to, I'll say, trim the fat and control costs, but the decisions have to be strategic and thoughtful. Really thinking through this entails approaching things differently, assuring that everything is done that adds value. And that's finance, efficiency, quality, patient safety, and and potentially patient experience. So if those opportunities are viewed through the lens of adding value, then at least you have good distinct criteria for making tough decisions. So if you come back to this volume piece, I think that there are a couple of sub bullets to that that become drivers for volume, right? There's the postponement of care in an economy like this, where things have been all over the place for the last three years, consumers, patients are driven to make choices. Do you pay for food? Do you pay for healthcare? Do you pay for childcare and things like that? And so I think that's one factor that affects volumes. I also think that lack of availability, and there are a myriad of reasons for this, right? There are providers, you know, physicians and advanced practitioners that have left the workforce for various reasons, retirements, burnout, all the things that become very prevalent in this. In addition to the fact that there are clinics, areas within the hospital, things like that, that have had to close or limit services due to lack of staffing. So that's why I mentioned the the workforce piece is going to weave back through this. And in addition to that, there's a hyper focus on workload. So what has typically been push, 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 get patients through, make sure that we're providing the services, I think has been scaled back a little bit for that reason. And lastly, simple competition. What we've seen historically is competition between health systems, but over the past few years, the prevalence of new entrants into the market is also creating additional competition. And some of this is not obvious. The changes in volumes, patients and providers vote with their feet. They tend to leave without raising their hand and saying, I'm changing. And so we have to think about how that is almost an insidious way that volumes change. 
The next piece we mentioned is really about reimbursement rates. And, and I think that while there's been for the past 10 or 12 years, a focus on the shift from fee for service to fee for value, that's becoming more and more prevalent now. Reimbursement rates have tended to be flat for the past few years in a fee-for-service world and trying to shift more to quality and or value-based metrics. That shift doesn't just occur at the payer level, though. It's got to be thoughtful in the, the approach from the provider standpoint because it not only affects the reimbursement rate and how they're paid, but there's also a necessary shift in operations and potentially in compensation models to drive that alignment to make sure that these changes in payer contracting remain durable and they thrive through the changes. So I think those things are all very important and factors in this. And I'll say one other piece to this too, is the ability to pay. If you think about all the changes that affect both of these in terms of volume and reimbursement rates, we've seen big shifts in the population and their ability to pay the increased number of uninsured and underinsured patients. So factors that all weave together. Such great points, Jay, particularly about the reimbursement piece driving some of the financial concerns right now. If we look at that ACHE survey, reimbursement specifically for Medicaid and Medicare as well as government funding, clocked in in the top 10 financial concerns for hospital CEOs. Ryan, I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about some recent developments that are really driving this concern. It all starts with policy, right? The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, that's the last time I'll say that on the podcast, I'll refer to them as MedPAC, is a pretty influential group. And we follow what they are recommending and what they're going to lobby for in Capitol Hill. They have some really large concerns. They look at the way hospitals and physician groups manage their finances, and they help make very strong recommendations on how lawmakers stay the course or optimize the way they help Medicare reimburse or Medicaid reimburse our hospitals and through the prospective payment system, both inpatient and outpatient. And MedPAC works very hard on helping to redirect those Medicare dollars from a provider point of view. And there's great concern that Congress is not doing enough to incentivize physicians, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, in ambulatory or hospital practice sites, to be viable for the future. And there's been a lot of articles recently, as they have been recently quoted on this premise, that a lot of folks in Congress feel like this financial downturn will be a short-lived financial downturn, which is frightening for physicians and hospitals because these federal relief funds that hospitals received in 2021, many people in Congress feel like offset the additional issues from a financial sustainability perspective. And that may not just be true. And in fact, there is an AMA report that talked about when you adjust for inflation, Medicare physician payment has effectively declined 26% in the last 20 years. So, you know, Jay mentioned that relatively flat from a nominal perspective, but when you take into consideration inflation, the physician payment has declined. So let's let's just take an equation here and think about the declining real reimbursement numbers that Medicare payments are giving. And then you match that up against increased labor and all of the things we factored in at the beginning of the podcast, there's a huge gap there. So there's a thin or negative operating margin that is disappropriately also affecting 
independent enrolled physician practice sites. So it's not just health systems, it's independent practice sites as well. And it's a pretty complex conversation around reimbursement rates. But I think the takeaway here is that reimbursement rates have not kept up with the ways of working or with inflation. And that really drives the financial sustainability or unsustainability of a health system. So Ryan, I agree with that. One of the biggest case and points about these changes and those types of volatilities is exemplified by the constant discussion over the past three years about the CMS physician fee schedule and how the changes in RVUs and reimbursement for those RVUs has affected independent physicians. So those types of things have not gone away. They've not been completely settled and there will be some ongoing discussion about how they're applied in both independent and integrated delivery networks. One thing that never ceases to surprise me right about the healthcare industry is just how interconnected all these factors are, especially when it comes to policy and providing care. And you start to see as we're talking through some of these factors, especially as it relates to reimbursement, almost the ripple effect and how quickly this can almost become a vicious cycle for providers where reimbursement is dropping, not keeping pace with inflation, cost of goods is rising. It's becoming more challenging for them to provide those financial interests to keep, to your point, Ryan, keep labor in this competitive environment. The workforce crisis is something that We've talked about before on this podcast, there have been no shortage of articles, but Ryan, could you take our listeners through why is it so impactful for the financial sustainability of provider systems? It's funny, we're jumping off from a pretty complex issue into maybe another one. I like to use paradoxical as a term to describe it. You would think at first glance that if you have less workers, it means lower costs and it would allow health systems and hospitals to thrive. It's quite the opposite. The inconsistency that we're seeing of, of shifts being filled and the inflexibility of the operating model of today's hospital and the way we're staffing folks has created enormous issues and great opportunity, you know, with companies coming in and helping create platforms to help that. But I, I think it's a really important piece of this puzzle around financial sustainability. We've talked a lot on this podcast around the workforce shortage, both clinical and non-clinical, but we focus on the highest cost, which is the clinical area. We've talked about this before, but I feel like it's really important is to, to fill gaps in staffing. Health systems and hospitals are, are relying on temporary contract travel workers, which is a huge expense. If you talk to a CEO or a COO or a CFO, this is a high priority situation. It immediately increases the health system's operating costs and immediately reduces the profitability to invest in the community. And more so, it creates this really interesting culture when you have stalwart veteran nurses or veteran clinicians practicing and standing beside travel nurses that make it pay two, three, four times the amount of money. It just creates this really interesting paradigm. From a policy perspective, there's many states, Fierce Healthcare just released an article that many states, more than 10 states are proposing caps on staffing agencies and the demand for travel nurses, which we thought may subside has not. So they're putting some proposed caps on what they're charging health systems for. And this surged during COVID-19 and it has not let down because it was actually advantageous for a certain group 
of nurses to do it and they've continued to do it. And something we don't talk about a lot that I'd like to mention is this idea of the workforce shortage resulting in potentially poor quality of care when you don't have the right amount of people providing care. And one may ask, why does that affect the financial sustainability? Poor quality care and lack of compliance ultimately costs money. It costs lives, it costs, it costs money. And understaffed healthcare workers, Jay mentioned you know, the burnout issues, they're overworked. And sometimes the folks that are there are unable to provide the same level of care when staffing levels are op optimal. And this leads to you know, medical errors, it leads to adverse patient outcomes, which as I mentioned is a, is a human event, but it's also a financial liability as well. And one more thing I'd like to mention about the workforce shortage is on the patient side of things. There's great leakage. You know, I think Jay mentioned earlier this idea of availability. Well, if I'm a patient or I have a family member that's a patient that's trying to get an appointment or trying to figure out the availability and it's six months out or four months out, I'm going to leave that hospital as a patient and go find another provider. And many times it's a non-conventional virtual telemedicine provider or some other independent group. These shortages are leading to longer wait times for appointments, really important procedures, and it delays medical treatment. And this in itself then reduces patient volume, which then reduces the revenue that a hospital can create. Ryan, I love your point about how these workforce shortages can really drive some of that patient leakage, particularly to some of these newer or these quote-unquote non-conventional players in the provider space that have cropped up in earnest during this pandemic and endemic era of COVID-19. I'm curious, Jay, if you could tell us a little bit more about how the growth of the non-conventional provider has impacted hospitals' bottom line. Absolutely. Just to reaffirm Ryan's comments, I think that the staffing shortage has precipitated so much movement along some of these previously tangential, now becoming more mainstream issues, you know, related to alternative providers and the conveners. And so I think we have to first acknowledge that this, if you want to call them new, they've been around for a while, but new types of provider has evolved and they're becoming more and more successful in the market because there's a demand for something different. There was an opening, there was an unfilled, unmet need. And that market opportunity was really about lowering costs and a, and a higher focus on patient care in a different way, less about volume, more about total value. And what we've seen a number of these successful companies grow into alternatives and become more commonplace, I'll say at the expense of the typical health system because they haven't been able to pivot as quickly. They haven't been able to shift away from their normal operating model. And that's not uncommon. You know, we've done a lot of work in this area over the past couple of years, and we continue to see questions emerge about how to make that shift. And then I think that these providers and the differences in their business model really lend themselves to this focus on patients' wellness and keeping them out of the hospital. And ultimately, when you start to think about the continuum of care that a health system provides from the front end primary care all the way through potential procedures, surgeries, and maybe even post-acute care, 
the conveners in these zoo models really focus on a very specific area and that area tends to be on the front end. It's the right focus. It's focused on wellness and it's focused on health, which lowers costs. But at the same time, it does impact the bottom line of the health system because there's no longer the same pull through into the inpatient beds. And these integrated delivery networks have all services and they must consider that expensive infrastructure. It's not easily downsized. It's not easily dismantled. The conveners, you know, as I said, are focusing on the front end and there's not a a lens to support that additional infrastructure. So at this point, it's easy to see why providing, you know, high quality, low cost care becomes at the expense of these others. And we need the services, but the systems don't easily downsize. And so I think that you know, is ultimately why the bottom line impact happens. It does seem like a faster pivot away from the inpatient world would make sense. It mirrors the trends that that we mentioned at the beginning of this section, but it has to be done thoughtfully. And I think our concern is without that forethought and without being very intentional around actions, you're going to see unintended consequences going forward. And that is very disruptive to patients and providers alike. We've talked a lot about the challenges during this financial crisis, but in any sort of storm, there are normally a few a few ports that are doing well. I'm curious, Ryan, are there any health systems you see faring well or faring decently in this space during this time? Yeah, it, it's not completely ubiquitously doom and gloom. There, there are some really healthy health systems, and this is exhibited through some healthy operating incomes. Uh, When I say healthy, it's pretty relative from a provider perspective. Think about Baylor, Scott & White, Sutter Health, the Mayo Clinic, which is really well known, UPMC in Western Pennsylvania, and a few other Midwest hospitals and health systems that are doing really well. And although there's some opacity on, on the details of it, we can prognosticate what key areas these health systems are focused on and why they're being pretty successful. And you can boil it down to kind of three areas. I think it's one is focusing on the new models of care for quality. Look at health systems like Sutter Health and Mayo Clinic, and they publicly invest in training their staff, implementing technology at a faster pace than their competitors. And you look at kind of the way that they create processes around centralized scheduling and creating these processes to ensure patients receive the best possible care up front. Ultimately, large investments that can result in lower costs over time. You also can credit efficient operations into this as well. Investing in technology that really streamlines administrative processes and focuses on reducing waste and utilizing a data-driven approach where they can improve efficiency and creating operating models and operating systems that really focus on solving problems. So that's that's the second piece. And when you think about health systems and IDNs like the Mayo Clinic, I also think of diversification. Many health systems have worked on diversifying their revenue stream by expanding services beyond what we'll call traditional and conventional healthcare services, whether that's research or taking on risk, like Sutter Health has, has a health plan, or going into retail health, which is you know high risk, but high reward. And these diversification efforts really help mitigate risk and provides additional revenue streams when other streams may not be as healthy. I love the commonalities in these areas of excellence across these high-performing clinics, but if I'm listening 
to this episode and I'm a healthcare leader, I might just be thinking about how do I stop the leaks during this storm, right? Rather than where can I expand my horizon? But that might be a little bit short-sighted and the true answer could lie in the balance. I wonder as these leaders are planning for the future, planning for how they can get back on track or even exceed their goals. Jay, what are your recommendations for them at this time? So I think there are a few things that are broad. Specifics really depend on the organization. But I think that first and foremost, you've got to confront reality. These issues are real. They're not going away. You can't ignore them. And you have to approach them differently. The labor crisis is a perfect example of that. It's not something that's just going to fix itself. And I think that being able to think differently is going to really be key. Beyond that, being strategic, you know, consider the whole organization, the interplay of different services. Don't assume that what got you here is going to get you there. So again, thinking differently, it's, it's a matter of how you can change the way you do things. I also feel that while cutting is a natural tendency and there may be areas that it makes sense to cut, one, one of those is rationalization of services. Not everything can fall into the cut your way to glory type philosophy. But if you are not a market leader in a service, if it's not essential and you can rationalize that service, whether that means exiting it completely or consolidating it into fewer locations where you get efficiency out of providing that service, that is certainly worthy of consideration. And then I think finally, this becomes a matter of changing the way you do things. Don't look for just paying people differently or assuming that the workforce is going to reinvigorate itself. I think looking at processes, looking at value-added steps becomes very important in terms of providing services efficiently. And it also helps with sustaining your staff. It addresses burnout issues because now the things they're doing are the right things. And that, that in turn becomes very helpful to the patient as well, which uh, as much as we talk about this from an internal lens and looking at the business, all of this, and I've never met a health system that doesn't really think about this from the patient perspective, which is the right way to come at it, you're going to create that sustainability to take care of your customers. Our team at Vynamic, specifically Jay and I, talk a little bit about the four pillars to really create durable solutions for providers. And there are top line and bottom line pieces, but there's also kind of a, a cultural piece too. When you think about how to stem the tides of financial issues, you think about strategy and growth, a relook at that. You think about making sure that we are investing in the right technology and focusing on the digital experience of our patients and not shying away from that, even though some of these solutions are seemingly expensive. And then I think from a people perspective, there is this idea of a sustained focus on governance and people. We work with a lot of health systems and leaders and there are many different ways that decisions can be made in a hospital and a health system. But what's important is making sure that decisions are made 
And in very stressful times, they're made quickly, succinctly, and you're able to be nimble as well. If it doesn't work, you have the same people that made a decision have the psychological safety to pull back on those things. Because the worst thing that can happen is when you're investing, whether it's capital, digital experience, digital solutions, trying to make something that's not working, continue to work is a futile exercise. And that's what a lot of health systems we've seen have gotten set themselves into trouble with. So back to the basics of, of focusing on strategy and growth, playing into the value-based strategy environment, making sure that we're investing smartly in technology and digital tools, and then also having the right decision-making processes and governance within a health system will really help stem the tides. Thanks, Ryan. I think one of my favorite sayings is every storm eventually runs out of rain and for leaders to really anchor during this financial storm, this financial crisis in that balance of the short and long-term view when it comes to strategy and their decision-making is really great advice. I just want to take some time to thank you both for coming on to the podcast and breaking down this, this complex topic into its core components and some of the key actions our listeners can can consider as they're navigating this decision-making. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about the work that we are doing at Dynamic to help health systems and provider networks during this time, please check out our dynamic.com slash providers page. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.